Hello, normally I say it's good to see everybody, but I can only see Tom and Eli. So hopefully uh, you all be able to see me just fine. If you would turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 3. Go all the way to the right in your Bible and uh, you'll be in the book of Revelation. Go back just a little bit and you'll get to 1 John and turn to chapter 3. I'm going to read the first three verses. And as I wrote to you earlier this week, we're just looking at a few verses, but we're going to do a deep dive. So let's go there now. 1 John 3 verses 1 through 3. And listen carefully as this is God's word. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who has who thus hopes in him, purifies himself as he is pure. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word and we need it. Thank you, as always, for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. Once again, we have come to your word and we find ourselves in a passage that most of us have read before, but it didn't seem to have much effect on us. So, uh, today, we thank you for the Apostle John and this love that you gave him to preach to a church that was in great need of hope. Give us hearts and minds to believe and understand all that you have written here in 1 John chapter 3 about how knowing God more and loving God more and trusting God more fills us with hope. And so we pray, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. For in his name we pray, amen and amen. At the beginning of 2021, hope may seem to be in short supply. There's a global pandemic, there's economic strain, there's racial unrest, massive disruptions to our communities, increased polarization, throughout American society, all make it seem to have eroded any hollow optimism that we might have. Virtually everyone has felt the strain of this past year. And so it might be tempting for each of us to be rather, well, hopeless. In his book, Good to Great, the author Jim Collins has drawn attention to what he calls the Stockdale Paradox. The former POW, Navy Admiral James Bond Stockdale, recounted to Collins how he assessed those who are best equipped to endure the horrors of Vietnamese prison camps. In Stockdale's memory, the optimists were the first to succumb. Given to rosy scenarios detached from reality, they expected to be liberated by Christmas and then Easter. And then when those expectations were shown to be utterly unrealistic, they died of a broken heart. As Admiral Stockdale put it, you must never confuse faith that you will prevail in the end, which you can never afford to lose, with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts 
of your current reality, whatever they may be. And this has come to be known as the Stockdale Paradox. Having absolute confidence that victory will ultimately come, but being able to see and navigate the very real challenges before us right now. When we're marked by hope, we can be honest that things might get worse before they get better. But the confidence we gain from having hope enables us to keep going in hard times. Optimism by itself is far too thin to hold up under the pressure, but hope has a resiliency that's necessary in times of crisis. And Christians should be the most hopeful of all. After all, there's no guarantee that any of our institutions or organizations will survive the uncertainties of an unknown future. That uncertainty certainly tempers our hope. But Christian hope is tethered to that which is absolutely certain. No matter what the circumstances this year may bring, the people of God are assured that Jesus has indeed defeated sin and death, that a day is coming when all wrongs will be set right, that our bodies will be raised to eternal life, and the whole world will be made new. Faith and hope go together. Our faith in the promises of God give us hope in the future faithfulness of God. There's no guarantee that 2021 will be easier or happier for you. There's no magical spell to be lifted suddenly bringing about good times. But Christians can live hopefully because we see further into the horizon by faith. Whatever this new year brings, we know that the one who sovereignly rules over all things, that he has always been faithful, and so he will continue to be faithful. But how do we know that? And that's where our text for today comes in. Turn with me to 1 John 3, verses 1 through 3. And the first thing we see is that knowing God's love gives us hope. If you've now printed out the uh, sermon outline, that would be the first blank uh, there. Verse 1, knowing God's love gives us hope. So the whole book of 1 John is about what it means to know God. In the first chapter, John shows us how to know God by receiving Christ as Savior. Most of chapter 2 is about how you know that you can know God. And at the end of chapter 2, he starts to explain why it's possible to know God. And in verses 28 and 29 of chapter 2, he says, Knowing God is not a matter of effort. It's not a matter of trying harder. You have to be born again and adopted into his family. And so being a Christian is to receive God's love in such a way that your status is changed. Your sins are wiped out. He accepts you as perfectly righteous in his sight, and you're renewed on the inside, what the Bible calls being born again. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's the truth. That's the gospel. We looked at that last week. But then John starts to tell us exactly how we can know God, starting at verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Now, the ESV doesn't quite get across the forcefulness of this statement that some of the older translations do. The New King James uh, Version translates this verse as, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. 
And the only human comparison I can find to that is to marriage, where we bestow our love on another. We don't just say, I love you, but we give our love to someone in such a way that it permanently changes their life and yours. And look at how the NIV translates it. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. What difference is it making in your life that you have had the love of God lavished on you? To be a Christian means there's a moment in which you cross a spiritual chasm and God brings his love into your life and it changes you forever. Now John begins this text with almost an inability to fully describe the love of God for his children. John simply invites us to see the depth of the Father's love in that God sent his son Jesus. John invites us to see that through our union with Christ, we're adopted into the family of God. We are his children. Now, our past identity, what we were, is an implication of this text. We were not always children of God. The Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians 2 verse 3, We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were alienated from God. And only when we come to grips with what we were can we fully appreciate what we are now. And can we fully appreciate the work of redemption that transformed us? When we were the enemies of God, at just the right time, he saved us. At our conversion to Christ, we have an awareness of our sin. We, have, uh, we feel the Spirit's conviction. We know of our need for a Savior, for Christ alone to atone for our sin and clothe us with his righteousness. But how little we know of the full ugliness of our sin and our utter unworthiness. How little we know of the holiness of God. And throughout our Christian lives, we continue to grow in our appreciation of both the depth of our sin on one hand and the towering height of God's holiness on the other. Part of Christian maturity is realizing more and more who we were and appreciating more and more who we are now. Because we've come so far. We have crossed this impossible chasm from being children of wrath to being children of God. And God's love is the only reason given to us here in this text as to how and why we're the children of God. God's love gives us hope because it took us from what we were, children of wrath, to what we are now, children of God. So we can have confidence in our identity now, confidence in who we are. We have confidence in being a child of God. But God loves us too much to leave us there. So next, John tells us what we will be. We will be like Christ. Which means that knowing God's glory gives us hope. Verse 2, knowing God's glory gives us hope. We have confidence in our hope of who we will be. Again, John tells us, verse 2, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Now, the Apostle Paul teaches us the same thing in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18, 
he says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. We are being fashioned after the image of Christ. And as we mature spiritually, we experience an ongoing transformation, a renewal. And someday we'll be fully transfigured, we'll be glorified, our transformation will be complete. The righteous standing before God, which we talked about last Sunday, earned for us by the perfect obedience of Christ, will not only be our position, it'll be our present reality. All of our remaining sin will flee like shadows when the lights come on. Our feeble and frail bodies, what Paul calls our earthly tents, will give way to our glorified bodies. All tears will be wiped away. And as if this weren't enough for John to call us children of God, he now tells us that this, in and through Christ, is what awaits us. This is what we will be. Someday, we will be like Christ. That's the hope. We will be fully and finally what God intends for us to be. What we will be is our hope, and in that hope we find our confidence. In these three verses, John gives us four takes on the verb to be as it relates to our identity. So there is who we were, and who we are, and who we will be, past, present, and future. But there's also the transition between present and future. So the fourth take is this, who we are becoming. And John tells us in eight very significant words, what we will be has not yet appeared. Those words should be like written on our foreheads. We are not yet what we will be. And all the fellow believers around us are also not yet what they will be. Now this can be great help to us as we encounter those frictions that come between us. Frictions that come up in the church, currently masks or no masks in person or online, but don't be fooled. When COVID passes, there's going to be new frictions, this ministry or that program, or there'll be old frictions, songs or hymns, less formal or more formal, and on and on it goes. We're human, we do frictions. Frictions come up in our families. This is what parents need to tell themselves every time they look at their kids. What they will be has not yet appeared. Teachers need to tell this to themselves about their students. Pastors, we need to remember this concerning the members of our congregations. Just saying. It helps us to have that necessary and rare commodity of patience with one another. It can be very comforting to remember what we will be has not yet appeared. And that phrase also helps us to have patience with ourselves. We are children of God. We will be pure and spotless. In the meantime, what we will be has not yet appeared. We're not there yet. Now this in no way becomes an excuse to condone sin, either in us or in others. But it's a reminder that we're not yet what we will be. And these words also remind us that we're in the process of becoming more like Christ, or at least we should be. What we will be has not yet appeared, but we're on our way. And that too gives us hope. We will be like him. 
Now, Jesus' appearance will result in our final transformation into the people God intended us to be from the beginning. Our completion in Christ will be fully realized. Our character will be cleansed of all sin, guilt, remorse, and regret. Every imperfection and inferiority will be expunged from our identity as though those things had never existed in the first place. And God will take pleasure in seeing his children become like his son. And in that, John wants us to have hope. Hope for the future, but also a hope that has everything to do with the present. And we see this when we ask, what does this hope do? The kind of hope that John speaks of sends us back into the world. What John says here is that hope has everything to do with how we live right now. Because knowing God's love gives us hope, and knowing God's glory gives us hope, but also knowing God's purity gives us hope. Verse 3, knowing God's purity gives us hope. It's important to understand that that biblical call to purity, to purify uh, yourself, is based on hope. Look at our last verse, verse 3. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. It's not enough to know this hope with your head. You have to be saturated with this hope in your life. That's how important hope is. However, we start with a big problem. I alluded to this in the letter I sent you uh, this week uh, in the weekly um, email that went out. And, and that's the problem is that our English word for hope is just too weak. It doesn't really signify that what the biblical concept of hope really is. So, for example, if I say to you, are you sure it's going to snow today? You would say... Oh, no, I'm not sure, but I hope it will snow. See, when it comes to snow, what does hope mean? Uncertainty. Are you certain? No, but I hope. That's the opposite of the biblical word. If the English word hope means uncertainty, it's the opposite of what the biblical word means. Every time you see the English word hope in your Bibles, that word may be misleading you. Here's what biblical hope means. Look at Hebrews 11, verse 1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. More literal translation might read, faith is the confidence of things hoped for, the certainty of things not seen. Biblical hope is a life-shaping certainty about the future. Or to put it in another way, Biblical hope is living now in a way that's completely changed because of what you know will happen in the future. That's hope, being certain about the future. Something that's not here yet, but being affected by it now. It's snowing now. That's why we're online. But you wouldn't look out at the snow and say, I hope it snows, because it's already snowing. You know it's snowing. You are certain that's snow. And John is telling us we can be that certain today about tomorrow. We can be that certain about our future right now. And it's that kind of certainty, that kind of hope that leads to purity. If you think about it, John's call for purity is stunningly countercultural. He may very well have been calling us to a living apologetic. And what that means is people are attracted to Christ because of how we live. God's word commands us to be pure. 
and it's not on a sliding scale. The standard for purity is God himself. Peter tells us to be holy as God is holy. John tells us to be pure as God is pure. Now, John's writing to the church in the first century. First century Rome was not known for its purity, and neither is 21st century America. We don't get to choose the world in which we live. We don't get to choose the time in which we live. But the place and the time in which we live, we are called to be faithful disciples. And Christian hope sends us back to live in the world. We're sent back into the world to live in a wholly new way. We're sent into the world to live holy and pure lives. Now, we live in a time where the ground beneath our feet is shifting. And actually, that doesn't give us a pass on engaging the world. Our time may very soon be a time of hostility, and that doesn't give us a pass either. We could simply complain how difficult it is to, to live as a Christian in the 21st century. And that complaint doesn't give us a pass either to get out from under our obligation to share the gospel, as we saw last week. In a time where everything's up for grabs, in a place where few principles seem to govern moral judgments, we must be careful we don't slowly succumb and start inch by inch to give in and give up. Notice that our incentive for living a holy life is based on our relationship with Jesus. My incentive for right living is based on building a greater devotion to Jesus. When you love Jesus, you want to be like Jesus. He's pure and holy, and his followers should want the same thing. And this humble self-awareness will help to keep us from either a posture of self-righteousness and moral superiority, or from being so far down on ourselves that we uh, refuse to do anything because we're just not good enough. Seeing ourselves as a people of purity gives us an apologetic stance to the world. It would be a potent testimony to the power of the gospel simply to be a people of purity in an impure world. But as I was thinking about this text, I had to wonder, why did John single out purity? He could have just as easily said everyone who has this hope is full of joy. And to be a person of joy is a profound apologetic too. Just this week I read about a missionary report on work among a small group in Africa and those among the people group who are Christians are known as the people who sing. When someone in their group wants to profess Christ, they don't say, I want to become a Christian. They say, I want to sing. And this is among the people who have suffered terrible atrocities, uh, decades-long strife, conditions of just rank poverty. And yet Christians sing because of their joy in Christ. Those Christians stand out, and the people around them ask them for a reason for the hope that is in them. I'd accept this a whole lot more if John said joy. Joy sounds better. Joy sounds easier. Purity just sounds harder and not so joyful. But if our culture is a lot like John's culture, and I think it is, what's the culture in greater need of? It's probably purity. And so what if we were a people of purity? What if our purity caused people to ask us, for the reason for the hope that is in us. 
John knew exactly what he was trying to tell us when he said, if we have this hope, we purify ourselves. The idea of living as a people of purity in this moment, in this culture, is a very powerful apologetic for the hope of the gospel. Now, there's one sentence in our text that I skipped over. Back in the end of verse 1, John writes, The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Christ came into this world and the world rejected him. And John is actually giving us something very helpful here. Of course, the world at the time of Christ knew him and the world since has known him. What John means when he says they didn't know him is that they didn't know him as Christ the Lord. They didn't have a relationship with him. The world didn't accept him. They considered him an outcast and they rejected him. In the same way, the world doesn't know Christians. The world doesn't accept Christians and so, like Christ, the world rejects us and considers us outcasts. And in some ways we are. Recently there's been accusations that all Christians are Christian nationalists. Some are, but not all. There's been accusations that all Christians, particularly white Christians, are racists. And some are, but not all. All the accusations right now are using a very broad brush. But even if we could somehow prove that all these accusations are false, and we can't because they're not, but for the sake of argument, if we could prove them all false, do you think the world would suddenly love and accept us? Probably not. Why not? Because the world hates the things that Christ loves and therefore has never loved and accepted Christians and has always, for 2,000 years, rejected us and considered us outcasts. And to be honest, a lot of times we deserved it. But that rejection can become a phenomenal burden for Christians to carry, so much so that we want to give in and give up. Now, that's why John holds out hope to encourage us. That's why John exhorts us to be pure. Now we know why John tells us to rest in our identity as children of God. Why John shows us who we were, who we are, uh, who we will be, and who we're becoming. So what do we do with all of this? Well, to help us uh, uh, answer that, let's go over to Romans for a few minutes. Romans speaks of two paths, conformity to the world or conformity to Christ. The first path, conformity to the world, appears to be a road well-traveled. The world knows those who conform. They applaud and celebrate those who conform. The other path, not so easy, not so well-traveled. But those who take the less-traveled road are in good company. The road of conformity to Christ can be lonely, and I think it's going to get lonelier in the years ahead. However, there's one on that road walking with us, and that makes all the difference. We are Christ's disciples. We follow him. He walks with us. And so John is both warning us and comforting us when he said the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. John is telling us that one can't really know Christians unless you know Christ because Christians are becoming like Christ. Now in Romans 8, the Apostle Paul says, we're predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. That comes to us from Romans 8, 28 to 30. It says, and we know that for those who love God, 
All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those to whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, something that's predestined is fixed, right? It's fixed. If you love him, there's something absolutely fixed about that, no matter what. That's what Paul's saying. So what is it that's, being, that, that's fixed, that's permanent, that's stable? Being conformed to Christ. He's going to make you like him. We become members of his family. The text that says that he'll be the firstborn among many brothers. We're all sons of God. We're all adopted into the family. We're all brought in. And when Paul's talking about something that happened in the Roman world, it's a little different than the way adoption happens in our world. In the Roman world, most people who were adopted were adults. Adoption usually happened like this. A wealthy man had no heir, didn't want his estate to be broken up when he died, so he would adopt an adult male, usually someone who worked for him, someone he trusted, and he would adopt that man and make him his son. And the minute that happened, that relationship was changed from one of formality to intimacy, from temporary to permanent, from conditional to unconditional. All the debts of that man before adoption were wiped out. And now he's considered rich, even though he hasn't received the inheritance yet. You see, conform to the likeness of his son is something that we have off in the future, but being conformed is already starting to happen right now, even gradually. Being firstborn among many brothers is something we have right now. We're in that category of many brothers. We're adopted. We're children of God. The minute you become a Christian, you have this family relationship. And in a sense, everything Jesus has accomplished is transferred to you, and you are beautiful in him, you are rich in him, you are accepted in him, you are loved in him. Now some of you may be wondering, some people may be put off by Paul's language of adoption because they think it's gender insensitive. They argue, wouldn't it be better to say that we become sons and daughters of God? It would in today's world, but it would miss the point. Tim Keller writes about a woman who helped him understand this. <clears throat> she was raised in a non-Western family from a very traditional culture. There was only one son in the family, and it was understood in her culture that he would receive most of the family's provisions and honor. In essence, they said, he's the son, you're just a girl. That's the way it was. And one day... She was studying a passage on adoption in Paul's writings, and she suddenly realized the apostle is making a revolutionary claim. Paul lived in a traditional non-Western culture, just like she did. He was living in a place where daughters were second-class citizens. And when Paul said out of his own traditional culture that we're all sons in Christ, he's saying that there are no second-class citizens in God's family. When you give your life to Christ and become a Christian, you receive all the benefits a son enjoys in a traditional culture. Now, as a white male, I've never been excluded like that. As a result, I have a much harder time seeing the sweetness of that welcome. 
I didn't recognize all the beauty of God's promise that raises us to the highest honor by adopting us as his sons. Our adoption means that we are loved like Christ is loved. We are honored like he is honored, every one of us, no matter what. Your circumstances cannot hinder or threaten that promise. And the more you live out of who you are in Christ, the more you become like him. Paul's not promising you better life circumstances. He's promising you a better life. He's promising you a life of purity. He's promising you a life of joy. He's promising you a life of humility. He's promising you a life of hope. He's promising you a life that goes on forever. Now, there's one question that's always there. It's always before us, before the church in every age. It's before us today, and it will be in front of the church for all the ages to come. And the question is, who is Lord? When the apostles and the believers in the New Testament answered that Christ is Lord, ramifications followed. That decision has consequences. But they didn't let the temporal consequences overshadow the eternal ones. The author of Hebrews reminds the believers they had, Hebrews 10, endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. And then he declares in Hebrews 10.35, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. And the reward is that someday we will be like him. That's our hope. It's not a hope that we put on the shelf. It's not a hope that sends us into hiding. It's a hope that sends us out into the world with confidence. And though the word hope is used frequently by the apostles Peter and Paul, this is the only time that the Apostle John uses the word. Oddly enough, it doesn't even occur in the book of Revelation. As believers, our hope is not in circumstances or in some optimistic wish for a better tomorrow. Our hope is in the person of Jesus Christ. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. We thank you for these words of the Apostle John. We're people who need to respond to the hope given to us in the gospel. We're people who need to know the love and the glory and the purity of God that gives us hope so that we might live as the children of God. We see the more we're able to set our hope and our hearts on the lavishness of your love and the certainty of our glory, the more we will find ourselves becoming purified right this moment. Purify us now, Lord, as we purify ourselves by setting our hope on these great truths in this great passage. Help us to share this hope with others and to preach this hope to ourselves regularly. So let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Help us to have real confidence in hope in the midst of this new year. 
For we ask these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.